Well, as we prepare for our sermon this evening, turn first to Romans chapter 5. It's Romans 5. We'll be reading verses 5 through 13. Or excuse me, Romans 10. I'll be reading verses 5 through 13. So Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. This is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul, as Paul writes to the Christians at Rome. And so, as this is inspired by God, we know it is his inerrant word. Again, Romans 10, uh, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring down Christ from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it is true that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus Christ, truly shall be saved. But we also recognize the role of your law in bringing us to salvation and teaching us how to live as saved people. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us through your word this night as it is read and as it is preached to have a greater understanding of you and of how we might serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's obviously not my intention with these evening sermons. These are... Uh, topical, not expository sermons uh, in the sense of just making our way through one book of the Bible uh, verse by verse. But, uh, so it's not my intention to exposit that whole text that we just read. And in fact, uh, so much of that text is uh, about things that we won't cover tonight, like about the fact that salvation is in Christ Jesus alone and that if we acknowledge that He is Lord and believe that He rose from the dead, then we shall be saved and We see that to call upon the name of Jesus is the same as calling upon the name of Yahweh for for Amos, or rather Joel 2.32 is quoted there in verse 13. uh, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But rather as our jumping off point here tonight, we see starting in verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And yet, as we find in Scripture and as we examine ourselves, we find that no one 
actually can keep that whole law. No one has since the fall except for Jesus Christ. As we've made our way through the teachings of the Bible summarized then in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we've talked about the fact that we're justified not by our own works because we can't keep that law. We're justified by faith, by God's grace working through faith apart from works of the law. But we've also seen that good works are produced by saving faith. So we say with the Protestant Reformers that we are saved through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It's a faith that is not alone. True saving faith is always going to produce works that are pleasing to God, and if we're not seeing those works in our lives, we have no reason to believe that we have saving faith. Well, that begs the question then, if saving faith produces good works, how do Christians relate then to God's law? Uh, What role does it play for us if we can't save ourselves by it and we're not condemned for falling short of keeping it perfectly because Christ has taken the condemnation on himself Uh, how do we relate then to the law is it useless to us I think noting that the that saving faith produces good works should clue us in that it's not useless to us the Westminster Confession addresses that question pretty thoroughly. It begins by saying, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. So when Adam was placed in the garden, as we've considered before, in chapter 2 of Genesis, we're told that God told him you can eat of any of the fruits of any of the trees in the garden, but of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And we know what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis that Adam, representing us, did exactly what God forbade, that he ate the forbidden fruit. The only knowledge of good and evil that he gained there was the first-hand knowledge of what it means to disobey God. And he surely did die. Became sure the day that he ate that, that he died, but God gave him a reprieve, and he didn't die until more than 900 years later. But as we see the account in Genesis 5 of Adam's descendants through Seth, we find that except for Enoch, who was taken directly to heaven, translated without dying, the account of the life of each descendant of Seth down to Noah ends with the statement, and he died. Adam and we through him were bound, as the confession says, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. And we failed. The confession says, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it. Well, death came because of the breach of it. And originally, the confession says, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Unlike you and I, who inherited Adam's fallen nature, Adam and Eve, in their 
original state had the ability to keep God's law perfectly. And that was manifest through that particular commandment, don't eat this fruit. We know that familiar account from Genesis 2 and 3 that Adam was given that commandment not to eat that fruit lest he die, but that, as I've already said, he disobeyed. And as our federal head, as our covenant representative, all mankind fell with him, and we all then bear the guilt of that sin. And this is called the fall. When we talk about doc- biblical doctrine, this is the doctrine of the fall. Capital F. But the fall did not do away with God's moral law. God still has a moral law that reflects his character. And this is why he's just to condemn us if he does. Because we all fall short of keeping that moral law. So the confession continues, this law after his fall continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written into tablets. The first four commandments containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. This is what we read in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17. You know these verses probably quite familiarly, but I'll read them for you here. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. I'll just pause there and note that's where the confession says those first four have to do with primarily with our duty to God. Of course we are, if we engage in these things, also harming our fellow mankind by uh, encouraging them to engage in these uh, behaviors that bring about God's wrath. And then there's a sort of a transition there we see in, in the fourth commandment because as it's reiterated in Deuteronomy, we find that the reason that God gives there, whereas here in, in Exodus 20 says you'll labor six days and rest the seventh because the Lord labored six days in creation and rested on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy, Moses says you need to remember to keep this for you were a slave in Egypt. Have mercy, therefore, on your servants, on people who work for you, because you were in a situation where someone made you labor without mercy. And so we see here there's also a bit of our duty to mankind there. Primarily, those first four are about our 
duty to God, then the, the remaining ones are primarily about our duties to other human beings. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. That's the reiteration, essentially, of the moral law that was first expressed simply by God saying, don't eat something I haven't, I've told you not to eat. But either way, uh, the moral law is simply this. Do that which God has commanded and don't do that which he has forbidden. And the things he commands and the things he forbids have to do with consistency with his moral character. The confession goes on and says, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances. Uh, when they say typical there, they don't mean uh, the common way of saying typical here would, in our day would be to say that they're commonplace. And that's not what, what the confession means here. It means that they are types, that they're images that point to something else. And so, so containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So what they're saying there is that, that there is a distinction between moral and ceremonial laws. Moral laws are universally applicable because they are ever and always expressions of God's character. It is ever and always wrong to worship false gods, to have idols, to blaspheme the Lord, to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, to lie, to covet. It will always be wrong to do those things. It's ever and always good to keep the Sabbath holy and honor your father and your mother. It will always be good to do those things. These are moral laws that reflect God's unchanging character. But other laws are ceremonial, and they apply to God's people differently depending on what time period they live in and what what covenant they're under. Of course, all of these are under the covenant of grace since the fall, uh, but under that covenant of grace, there are in different time periods different covenants that God gives to his people and relates to them by those covenants slightly differently from, t- from uh, one time period to another. Ceremonial laws are things like you know, regulations about sacrifices, rules about which sacraments God institutes and what manner they're to be carried out in. Old Testament ceremonial laws like the sacrificial system, laws about ritual cleanliness, the construction of the temple, and so on. All of those things foreshadowed Jesus. Hebrews 10.1 says the law, meaning Old Testament ceremonial laws, has but a shadow of the true form. So those things are typical, as the confession says. They're pointing to something else. They're an image of something else that we're to be looking for. Colossians 2.17. These, again, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Only things of substance cast shadows. An insubstantial thing doesn't cast a shadow. An invisible man, if there were such a thing, wouldn't cast a shadow. 
If I see your shadow, I know you're nearby. So the shadow points to the existence of a thing, but the shadow itself has no substance. I can't capture your shadow, whatever Peter Pan might tell you, give you the idea of. I can't capture your shadow. The Old Testament ceremonial laws point to Christ, like a shadow cast by him. Now that Christ has come and fulfilled the purpose of the Old Covenant laws to abide by them, uh, to abide by those Old Covenant laws would be like saying that Christ didn't actually quite do enough. And it would make as much sense as I think I used the, this illustration a few nights ago uh, in conversation with the Thurlows, that, that, that if you were standing around a corner and there was a light source behind you and I could, I'd be able to tell by your shadow shining there or not shining, but your shadow cast out there, that that you're there. I might be able to tell some things about you, whether you're wearing a hat or not, that sort of thing. But of course, shadows can be distorted, so it's hard to tell sometimes. But I'd be able to tell cert, discern certain things about you. It'd be awfully silly of me, though, if you stepped around the corner and now I can see you to keep going by your shadow instead of by what I actually see standing in front of me. Christ is the substance. In fact, it makes as much sense then to pay attention to the Old Covenant ceremonies or to keep them, to require them, as if I were then to say that I'm going to ignore what you look like in front of me and go still by the shadow. What if I tried to strike up a conversation with your shadow or offer it food, ask if it would like to Come to my house to watch a movie with me. So that's that would be silly. Colossians two fourteen says that Christ nailed those things to the cross. Daniel nine twenty seven actually predicts that Christ shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. In Acts ten, the the Lord tells Peter that he's done away with those old covenant ceremonial requirements because he fulfilled them completely, and he is what they pointed to. So the ceremonial requirements are not laid upon us anymore. Acts 10, verses 9 through 20. We read, The next day, as they went on their journey, this is talking about messengers coming to to bring Peter, actually, to the house of a Gentile to whom the Holy Spirit has spoken. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there, 
While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. There we see that Peter knew that he was to go ahead and have fellowship with Gentiles, and the, the uh, subsequent account there tells us that he baptized them. And then in the following chapter, gives that account to the church in Jerusalem, even though some objected to their baptism. And he says, well, how could I withhold baptism from them when the Holy Spirit had already fallen upon them? And so we're taught, one of the things we're taught by that passage is that we're no longer bound by the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Now, Old Testament Israel also had civil laws, as the confession points out. As to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So there are civil laws for ancient Israel as a state. Since the church does not function as a state in the world, uh, we don't require those same laws and there but it is as the confession says there's a general equity of them so there are principles moral principles behind those laws that it is healthy for nations to adopt as the principles behind their own laws so you and i for example don't have homes with flat roofs for the most part where people spend a lot of time in ancient israel there were laws saying if you build a house you have to put a parapet around the roof so that nobody falls off of it. We don't take our house guests up to our roof very often, uh, so that's that would be kind of silly for us to have to build parapets around our sloped roofs where we don't hang out. But the general principle of doing things that provide for the safety of the people in your home, well, that's applicable, and it's reasonable for states to have laws that say things like, hey, uh, you should, within a reasonable amount of time, clear the ice off of your sidewalk or something like that. Uh, that would be in keeping with the general equity of those laws without us having to have the exact same laws. Israel as is a civil state within the world had civil laws. Uh, some of them may be useful to us as a model for our civil laws. Uh, who could improve on God's revealed principles of government, right? For example, uh, removing evidence of a property line. It doesn't have to be the exact same kind of marker that they would have had in ancient Israel, but it's still theft. Uh, So the moral principle behind removing evidence of someone else's property law stands, but we don't have to have the exact same types of stone markers that they had in ancient times. We're not bound to have the exact same civil laws, but the same principles we ought to have. Because ancient Israel doesn't exist as a civil state any longer. Now, all that brings brings us to the question, though, of the moral law. The moral law has not changed. Because God's moral character has not changed. So, yes, there are ceremonial laws that apply to a particular period of time for God's people, and there were a lot more ceremonial laws for the, the Old Covenant, particularly the Mosaic Covenant era, keeping those things in place, keeping Israel in place as a people until Christ should come and fulfill the law. This is what Paul teaches in Galatians. There were civil laws for ancient Israel as a state, and we don't have a state which is the church in the world. The God has made his people of all the nations and is making his kingdom of all the nations 
of the earth, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. But there are the moral basis for those laws, and God's moral expression of himself, of his own character, is universal. So as the confession says, the moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others. So it's not just that we say the moral law, the Ten Commandments, for example, are only for the church. No, everybody is accountable for how we keep or don't keep those commandments. The moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, much, but much strengtheneth this obligation. Romans 3.19 says, The moral law exists that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In Matthew 5.17-19, through 19, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But if we can't save ourselves by keeping the law, why are we required to keep it? If we contribute in no way to our own justification before God by any of our good works, what good then is that law for us? Well, the confession deals with that too. It says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, so we're not in the garden in the covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet is it of great use to them as well as to others. And that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfections of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruption, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it, in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as do them by the law as a covenant of works, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. We can summarize all that by saying basically there are three uses of God's law. The one I usually list third, I'll list first here. The moral law restrains evil in general and calls sinners to account. As we saw uh, or see rather in uh, scriptures like Romans 3.19 that it, it points out that, that uh, everyone is accountable to God because no one is righteous. James says that, that to violate one law is to be guilty of the whole law. For if you do the law, you'll live by it. But since none of us do that law, 
when we fall short, then we're guilty of it. James 2.10. So that's, the first, that's one use. Another use of the law is, is that it teaches that we need a Savior. It teaches us that we're sinners who do fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we need a Savior if we're to be reconciled to God. We can't do it ourselves. So it drives us to Christ. As it, as it were, holds up a mirror so that we can see just how sinful we actually are. As we see in James 1, verses 23 through 25, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So the scriptures, or the law of God, shows us that we're sinners, and that we're incapable of justifying ourselves before God. Romans 3.20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So it teaches us the knowledge of our sinfulness, that we need a Savior. And we can't save ourselves by keeping that law any more than I could clean myself by using a broken piece of the mirror on my face. No, I have to be cleaned else by another means, not by the mirror itself. But the mirror shows me I'm dirty and that I need to wash my face, right? Well, in this case, of course, the difference being in that analogy that we don't have the means to wash ourselves. So third, then, after we fled to the Savior, who can cleanse us, the moral law shows us how to thank God and show evidence that we actually are saved. Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So Paul's asking if, if we're saved by God's grace alone, working through faith alone and Christ alone, does that mean the law has no place in our lives? He says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We saw this previously. Now this is not contrary to grace. As the confession concludes this portion by making clear, it says neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. So you and I can't by our own power keep God's law, but if we are saved, the Holy Spirit working within us empowers us to keep God's law, which as we saw previously, teaches us that we actually are saved. It gives evidence that we can have assurance of our own salvation. Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, that is, all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if we're purified and zealous for good works, what are we going to do? 
as we considered this morning, we look to the Bible. We look to God's law and see what pleases Him and seek to do those things. We see that God's moral law then is summarized in the Ten Commandments as the standard for believers in every age. It restrains evil. It shows us our need for a Savior. It's the basis for living the very Christian life that we are to live if we do cling to Him as our Savior. It displays God's holiness and convicts us of sin. It's the way that we evidence the fruit of salvation. So the exhortation for you this evening is use God's law to learn how to show that you belong to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law, for it displays your holiness, it restrains evil, it shows our need for a Savior and repentance and forgiveness that we need in you, and it shows us how to thank you for redemption. May we live lives of gratitude by seeking to do your will as revealed in your moral law. We pray in the name of the only one who has kept that law perfectly, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.